Welcome to The Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner, and this is our summer series where I'm sharing free bonus samples from the audio version of my newly released memoir, Lies of the Magpie. Today we have chapters 24 and 25. Hi friends, and welcome to this episode. So glad you are here. You know what popped up on my Facebook memories today that I wasn't even thinking about? Exactly four years ago to this day, I had stayed awake all night long working madly to meet the June 27th submission deadline for the Utah Arts Council original writing competition. And I went to my husband's office and I remember being so spooked. Offices are creepy at night and being awake all night long madly typing and polishing and editing and laying out the chapters of just trying to get it as polished as possible to submit to the competition. And I had submitted to the exact same competition two years prior and hadn't heard anything, hadn't placed, hadn't gotten an honorable mention, nothing. This was still the same story, but I had greatly revised it. It had the new title, which was Lies of the Magpie for the very first time. This was the first time that the manuscript was debuting with this new title. And it had this new character of Laia, and it had a lot more elements of storytelling and literary narrative. I had no idea what the result of the competition would be. There was a cash prize involved, but I remember that it wasn't as much about the cash prize. What I really wanted was if you finished first or second place, you received back the judge's responses. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to hear from someone what worked in the story, what didn't work, what I could improve, what I could strengthen. And so I just really wanted to get into that first or second place slot. But what was most important to me was that I was finishing. I had taken the manuscript to a point. I didn't feel it was finished, but I felt that it was greatly improved and that I had finished it to a point where it had a definite beginning, middle, and ending, which was kind of novel because I hadn't really finished the book before. The entry I had done a couple years before, it had a pretty weak ending, and I'd spent so much time on the beginning and in the middle that I hadn't really worked over the ending. So this was the first time that I'd really spent any amount of time ending the manuscript. And I remember at that time just trying to be proud of myself, just reminding myself that the accomplishment was in finishing. The accomplishment was in deciding to do it, deciding to enter the contest, and bringing my manuscript to a point of finish. The other difference, the other thing that was different for me than when I had entered the competition two years earlier, is that I actually hired an editor. I just went on Outsource.com, I think was the site, and read through freelance editor bios and found one that jived with me. And working with her was amazing. It was like taking a master class in writing. And I never majored in writing in college. I never took any creative writing classes, which I regret now. So working with her was like having private tutoring And wow, she honed in on weaknesses in my writing. She helped me understand point of view and tense 
and how to use flashbacks. She helped me get rid of the soapboxing when I would um, interject my own beliefs and thoughts into the story instead of just letting the story tell itself and letting the reader have their own experience with the story. So she helped me get rid of the soapboxing and the editorializing and really made a huge difference in that version of the manuscript. And I just wanted to share that. It popped up on my Facebook feed today, and I know many of you are writers and are in the process of working on manuscripts, and I just wanted to share that working with an editor is amazing. It is an investment. It is a big leap of faith in yourself and in your writing, especially pulling cash out of your own pocket when you have no idea if this will ever become a book and if you'll ever make a dollar from it. And I understand how scary that can be. But I will say, when you have your manuscript to a point where you're really comfortable with it and you know your story and you feel like you've taken it as far as you can go on your own, that working with an editor, you will progress much, much faster than you will without working with an editor. So there you go. I hope that that is a helpful tip for someone out there. The other thing I want to share before we dive into today's chapters is it's almost July. That means... It's almost my birthday, my birthday on July 1st. And you know what I would love for my birthday? Reviews. Thank you, thank you to many, many of you who have already taken the time to leave a review for this podcast on iTunes and who have left a review for Lies of the Magpie on Amazon and on Goodreads. I know it takes a minute. I know it takes some time to go in and leave those reviews. I am working to expand my audience beyond my intimate circle of family and friends. And nobody out there knows who this Malia Warner is. And it is by your reviews that the word spreads and that this podcast and this book can go out to a wider audience. So thank you from my heart for taking the time to leave reviews. And I hope that you have a great June into July week. And for you listeners in the United States of America, happy 4th of July Independence Day. Let's dive into today's chapters of Lies of the Magpie. Last week was The Longest Day and Circus. We got really into the juggling and the chaos and the marathon that is mothering and parenting young children. Today is chapter 24, Postpartum Visit and chapter 25 episodes. And what I want to say about these chapters is it took me so long to get my postpartum visit scheduled. Moms, can you relate? I You're supposed to go in at six weeks. I was nine or 10 weeks post-delivery by the time I finally got into my doctor. My episiotomy still hadn't healed. I still had extra holes where there shouldn't have been holes and it was raw and burning. I had gotten all of my children into dentist appointments. I had baby Jack caught up on all of his shots, but I had not gotten myself into the doctor. The other thing I want to say is, isn't it interesting that mothers only get one postpartum checkup? The baby is seen at a couple of days after birth, two weeks after birth, four weeks after birth, eight weeks after birth, and on and on through that first year, and the mom is only seen once. The other thing that you'll see from these chapters is that I'm starting to feel some deja vu, some reminiscence to how I had felt after Kate's birth, 
when I had never heard the term postpartum depression before, I just believed that what I had was an incompetency, a character weakness, that I wasn't cut out to be a mother, that I wasn't any good at it. And I flash back to some episodes that had happened after Kate was born because I was starting to experience some of the same things and just trying to sort out what was going on. Also, I was horribly afraid to mention depression to my doctor. I didn't really understand it. It had so much stigma for me. And so these chapters reveal my fears about taking medication and about being weak, about being a weak woman. So with that set up, I present for you Lies of the Magpie, chapters 24 and 25. Chapter 24, Postpartum Visit. The next week, I shake Danny's shoulder. Hey bud, wake up. You have to get ready super fast. We all slept late. Danny pulls the covers close to his chin. Danny! I yank the covers off and lift him out of bed onto his feet. He wobbles on unsteady legs. Can you get dressed by yourself, please? I still have to shower and get myself ready. My six-week postpartum checkup is today, finally, though I gave birth nine weeks ago. Danny drops back onto his bed. I heft his weight and maneuver him to the bathroom, standing him on my feet in front of the toilet. The whoosh of urine splashes around the porcelain bowl, spraying the floor and my bare feet. With one arm, I balance Danny upright. He sways like a drunk man. And with the other hand, I wipe the drips. Once he's dressed, I repeat the same process with his sister. These are the same children who were awake by sunrise every morning this summer? My shower has to run 20 minutes before the water turns warm. We live in the hottest state in America and can't get a hot shower. There's no time to wait. I wash in frigid water. I have so much to do. I chastise myself for sleeping late. Out of the shower, I pump a bottle of milk for Jack. Hurry, get your backpack! I shoo Danny away from his bed where he was recounting for Tanner how Pikachu evolves from Pichu then into Raichu. I don't understand Pokemon, but Danny seems to have memorized every Pokemon's region, type, energy, and weakness. He should have no problem mastering the periodic table of elements. Down the hall, Kate is slumped onto the floor next to her bed, singing to the socks she dangles before her face. I grab the socks out of her hand and hastily slide them onto her feet. Ouch, she complains. If you had done it yourself, then it wouldn't hurt. Get your backpack and meet me in the car. Rushing out the front door, I see Danny and Kate twirling on the front lawn. Get in the car! Get in the car! I shout. They stop spinning and stare. Don't stand there. Get in the car. Your car or dad's car, Kate asks. Now I stop, uncertain. Which keys did I grab? Do I need the vehicle with the car seats today or does Aaron? We don't know whose car is whose anymore. We're always juggling who has the keys or the kids, who is staying home and who's leaving. We either schedule conflicting appointments or we're home at the same time. This is when we butt heads. And our children are even more off-kilter. Dad is working from home now, but he's still working and they aren't accustomed to asking him for help. I'm home, but not necessarily here. I look at the keys I'm holding in my hand. Get in the van! On the drive to school, Danny asks, Mom, why are you going to the doctor? Are you going to get another baby out? 
I said that we already had a little baby, and did he think we needed another? He contemplated the issue seriously, then nodded. I'd like 25 babies. Yeah! Kate bounces with enthusiastic agreement. 25 babies. Heaven help us. The nurse at Dr. Wood's office hands me a paper exam gown. My legs poking out from under the cherry red paper look like the two wooden handles of a popsicle. Overhead, the air conditioner blows chilled air directly on me. Outside, it's 106 degrees, but lying on this exam bed, I might as well be sitting on a shelf in the freezer. Goosebumps speckle my pasty skin. The bright medical lights overhead bring back blurry memories of Jack's birth. Being here at this hospital for the first time since the delivery summons a deluge of emotions, and again, as happens any time I recall that night, I'm flooded with regret. So many questions, I don't know which to ask first. Aaron wants me to mention it to Dr. Woods, but I don't feel depressed. Something doesn't feel right with me, but it is not depression. When Dr. Woods comes in, I can tell he is rushed for time. Hello, he says with a warm smile, washing his hands. How old is baby? Nine weeks already? He opens my gown for a breast examination. Sorry if my hands are cold. He moves down the table to extend the stirrups. You know, sometime I'd like to actually deliver one of your babies. Dr. Woods laughs as he reaches for a speculum. I'm sorry, I apologize with genuine guilt. I tried to hold on. Really, I did. Ooh, that looks tender. Dr. Woods wrinkles his brow as he examines my episiotomy. Which doctor delivered you? It was the on-call doctor, Dr. Babich. My biggest regret was not being delivered by Dr. Woods. He wasn't there, and I'd been manhandled by a strange doctor who'd stitched me like a ripped canvas tent. This summer, I'd driven too many hours on the horrid episiotomy. Will I always have an extra hole down there? I wince as he probes the crooked seam. We can restitch it if we need to, but it looks like it will close on its own. All the emotions of the past nine weeks surge up. The words are practically fighting to get out of my throat. My heart pounds in urgent need to sit up and blurt the whole story to Dr. Woods. The road to Tucson, my dilemma about when to go to the hospital, how I'd held on so he could deliver me, how I was here on that Monday. Did he remember turning me away? Then the bath, the Tylenol PM, the speed of the delivery. There's so much I want to do over, which doesn't make sense to Aaron, but it will make sense to Dr. Woods. I'm too close to the situation to know if it's real or all in my head, but this wise doctor will make it all better. This has been my hope and prayer for the appointment, that Dr. Woods will know how to fix me. My lungs need a refill of air, and then I'm ready to start pouring out my heart. But Dr. Woods slides the stool back and rips off his latex gloves. If the episiotomy hasn't healed in a few weeks, come back in. Otherwise, everything looks good. Congratulations on the baby. But... Aaron made me promise. Um, wait, I do have... One question. Dr. Woods stops with one hand on the doorknob. Another big breath. Since Jack was born, no, well, just lately, maybe longer, I, I haven't been feeling well. What specific symptoms could I give him? Nothing outside of being really stressed, moody, and completely disorganized, but a doctor can't fix that. 
after my second baby, I think I might have had, I don't know, maybe some postpartum depression? Instantly, I wish I could suck those words back in and swallow them down into the darkness of my bowels where they belong. I mean, I don't know. I was never diagnosed. It went away on its own. Dr. Woods interjects. Would you like a prescription for Wellbutrin? The room is silent, but inside my head is a buzz of questions. What is Wellbutrin? Is it an antidepressant? How do you know if I need an antidepressant? Is it safe for breastfeeding? How do you know if I have postpartum depression? What if it's something bigger, like a brain tumor? Do you test to see if a person's chemicals are out of balance before throwing in a complex drug with all its possible side effects? Do you have a list of questions I should answer before you prescribe medications? If I start taking an antidepressant, will my body become dependent so I have to take it for the rest of my life? What about my friend who had a horrible reaction to an antidepressant and ended up worse than before taking the medication? How do you know I won't be like her? My brain can't form the swirl into coherent sentences. Beneath this paper gown, I'm stark naked, my legs splayed out in stirrups, a frog on a dissection table, with jelly dripping down my inner thighs. My teeth chatter in the subarctic temperature. I want my clothes, my underwear, my socks. From my prostate position, I crane my neck to see Dr. Woods at the door waiting on my answer. His next appointment is checking her watch in the neighboring room. He's my only doctor but I am not his only patient. He is special to me, but I am not unique to him. He sees dozens of pregnant women just like me, day after day, all year long. We stream in and out of his office like an assembly line of baby makers. To him, I am routine. My hope for this appointment was that he would take one look at me and immediately know what was wrong and how to fix it. My dear, you have a foreign augmentative thoracic cardiovascular neoplasm. Don't you worry, we'll have you fixed up in no time. But Dr. Woods doesn't say that. I don't know what's wrong with me, and apparently he doesn't either. There are other medications like Zoloft, if you prefer, Dr. Woods offers. I don't know any more about Zoloft than I do about Wellbutrin. My life is too complicated right now to make stab-in-the-dark guesses and play experimental prescription roulette. I can't afford to add one more unknown into the overcrowded chaos of my life. No, no, thank you, but no, I think it's probably just normal baby blues. Call our office if you change your mind. Dr. Woods makes a note on a paper and deposits my chart into the file holder on the door. I toss the used paper towels into the trash peel off the gown, and stand bare-skinned in the middle of Dr. Wood's office, staring out the sixth-story window. On the drive home, I recount the appointment for Laia. The first tidbit she grasps onto is that Dr. Woods had made a note in my chart. Depression will be on my permanent record now. If anything mysterious happens to the kids, to Aaron, or to me, I will be the primary suspect because it is in my file. I ask Laia if she thinks I made the right decision or if I should have taken the prescription. Laia says, Every woman is tired and overwhelmed after having a baby. I don't think you have anything that's outside normal. It's not like you're going to drown your children. You're no Andrea Yates. The thing that scares me about taking a drug is not knowing how the side effects will mess up my system. My family has crazy reactions to medications. I remember being 14 years old and watching a niece nearly die from an allergic drug reaction after getting her wisdom teeth pulled. My brother went for a simple colonoscopy and ended up with an abdominal infection and three feet less colon than he started with. 
I've seen too many situations when drugs or a medical intervention has made the patient worse than they were to begin with. True, I don't feel good, but I don't want to be worse. Laya agrees that taking medication isn't worth the risk, especially for something like depression, which is a mood disorder, not an illness. Remember the interview with Dolly Parton on Oprah, Laya reminds me? Dolly said that the best way to cure depression is to get off your butt and get to work. I need to pull up my big girl bootstraps and adopt Dolly's no-nonsense attitude. Get up in the morning and exercise. Eat more nutritiously. Time and hard work are always the best medicine. Before sleep, I collapse on my knees against my bed. Tonight, I mostly ask God to please help Jack sleep until morning. After my amen, I crawl under the covers. Bed feels so good. Aaron rolls close, his hands slide up my pajama shirt. My body goes tense. In the conversation about the episiotomy, Dr. Woods hadn't mentioned instructions about sex, and I'd forgotten to ask. It's been over two months. Aaron's hands freeze. I don't know how to respond. No matter what I do, I can't win. Refuse and Aaron resents me. Consent, and I split a bigger opening. Then will the episiotomy ever heal? My body has been probed, prodded, and excavated. My nipples have been sucked to ruination. I am going to scream and pull out all of my hair if one more person needs a piece of me. Go ahead, world. Spread me out on a buffet table and devour away. I am being eaten alive. Aaron flips onto his back his words aimed at the ceiling. Did you ask Dr. Woods about postpartum depression? It takes me a long time to answer. His question grates at me. Is he implying that I'm avoiding sex because I'm depressed? I don't want to be in this bed with him. He has no idea what I'm going through. Why doesn't he hold me and say he's sorry that I'm split open in the crotch, that it must really hurt? Why doesn't he thank me for all my body has gone through to have our baby? He could say how amazing I am for everything I do during the day despite being in pain. There are so many things he could say. Instead, he points to another way he thinks I'm broken. There's no way I can put all that into words. What comes out is simply, I did. What did he say? He asked if I wanted a prescription for Wellbutrin. Did you get the prescription? No, he didn't even do any tests. What tests are there? Aaron asks. I don't know, but he didn't even ask questions. Don't you think you had it after Kate? I don't know. I don't know if there's a definitive test or if I was self-diagnosing. Besides, with Kate, it went away on its own. Aaron is silent. He thinks it has never really gone away. I want to give it more time before trying drastic measures. Why is medicine a drastic measure? I don't know anything about Wellbutrin. I don't know how my body will react. Did you ask? We didn't really have time. I don't want to take a drug while I'm breastfeeding, and my body always reacts to medication differently than other people. It's normal for women to not feel right after having a baby. Aaron rolls to the other side. We know more now. We know how to handle it better than we did before. It. That's how we refer to this thing neither of us can define nor describe. 
an unseen poltergeist that lives in the gutter. Every now and then we wake to the aftermath of its haunting, but can't exactly describe its face. Aaron doesn't answer. An unmeasurable amount of time passes, thick with tension and mutual exhaustion, but devoid of sleep. Eventually, Aaron's breath slows and deepens. Silently, I wipe up my eyes with my pillowcase. Strange images pass through my head, but I do not dream. Chapter 25. Episodes. My eyes watch the ceiling fan make its rotation as the perplexing images pass through my mind like slides from ancient family vacations. Once again, I wish I could convince myself these images are fragments of hallucinations rather than snapshots of reality. It all seems to have happened so long ago, if it happened at all. We were driving down Bell Road to a party at Anissa's house with Danny and Kate buckled in the back seat. Danny in full toddler vibrato saying, Who let the dogs out? while 18-month-old Kate joined in the chorus, showcasing her newest animal sound. Woof! From the outside, this Polaroid looks every bit the happy family photo. Then, maybe Aaron asked a question about money. Or perhaps his comment was as trivial as noticing the increase in traffic congestion with the snowbirds back in town. It could have been anything or nothing at all. My head was spinning. It had probably been spinning all morning. My chest tightened, my airway constricted, the car closed in on me. I couldn't tell Aaron what was wrong because I didn't know. I only knew that if I didn't get out of the car, I was going to suffocate or burn. At a red light, I opened my passenger door and walked in and out of four lanes of stopped cars. The light turned green before I stepped onto the curb. Horns honked angrily at Aaron, who was yelling for me to get back into the car. Without turning around, I crossed the parking lot and disappeared into a tobacco shop, a place Aaron would never look for me. It wasn't crowded in the tobacco shop. It was small, nowhere to hide. The clerk asked how he could help me today. I said never mind and went back outside. After wandering the parking lot, I dropped down onto the curb, my feet in the gutter, head low like a homeless beggar. My feet kicked at gravel while I wondered if Aaron would turn around and go home, leaving me to figure my own way out of this. Or maybe he would continue on to Anissa's house, though it's awkward to arrive at your sister-in-law's house without her sister. Aaron wouldn't call me. At the time, neither of us had a cell phone. He might come for me, and this is the scenario that played out in my mind, one train of thought anticipating him berating me harshly, and the more wishful images of him running toward me, his eyes full of worry scooping me in his arms, kissing my tears and making it all better. I hadn't even sat on the curb long enough for my caprice to get dirty before the Taurus pulled up slowly and stopped in front of me. Aaron didn't get out. He just waited. Eventually, I stood up, opened the passenger door, and took my seat. Aaron held tight to the steering wheel. What on earth were you thinking? I hadn't been thinking. I didn't know what to think. When I'd opened the door, it was because I couldn't be in that place anymore, in that car, in my life, in that existence. I hadn't wanted to die. I'd only wanted to get out. Aaron pulled out of the parking lot and continued to Anissa's. Tell me, what have I done to make your life so miserable? Is your life really that bad? I shook my head. My life wasn't bad. My life was incredibly good. I just wasn't cut out for it, which made my self-hate more acrid. 
By the time we arrived at Anissa's house, my face was cheerful, smiling, ready for the party. My red eyes were these darned allergies. As the party progressed, I warmed up, talking, laughing, making jokes, and touching Aaron's arm with affection. And once we got back in the car for the drive home, the episode was gone. The flash of lightning disappeared. We didn't mention it. No reason to talk about a thunderstorm when the sun is shining. Months later, Aaron found me, sitting on the floor of the shower, water running over my head, comparing the blade of my razor to the large blue vein on the white skin of my wrist. I wanted him to see me. I had waited a long time sitting in the shower with the water wasting for him to come in from working in the yard. Jealous that the lawn and bushes got more attention from Aaron than me, I sat, wanting him to see me, wanting him to rescue me. When at last the bedroom door opened, I kept my head folded over my knees. Next, the shower door opened in a fury, but he did not fall to his knees and scoop me up. Mixed with the rushing water, I heard his voice. Tell me, he cried, what do I do that makes you so miserable? Am I so hard to live with? Then silence. It's not you, I finally yelled. Just go. I'm not going to do anything. The blinds on our outside door rattled a long time after the door slammed. Against the tile wall, the razor shattered and bounced on the drain, the water pushing the plastic pieces like pebbles in a creek bed. I pounded my head against the back of the shower. I don't remember getting out of the shower, but once I did, the rest of the day was laundry and Saturday chores, Aaron and I barely speaking to each other, and certainly not mentioning the incident. At some point, Aaron and I began alluding to these outbursts, if we spoke of them at all, as episodes. This seemed the best term to describe my bizarre spurts of behavior because they happened irregularly, came out of the blue, and seemed to turn on and off like a TV drama. Most often, we sidestepped the topic, a couple of shell-shocked soldiers tiptoeing cautiously through a minefield. Occasionally, during a tense conversation where one or neither of us were being careful, we said it. Through trial and error, copious amounts of error, we figured out that it, whatever it was, raised its monstrous head less often if I got out of the house by myself. We designated Thursdays as my night, and after dinner I left Aaron wrangling the kids and dishes and drove alone to the library. With unbridled rapaciousness, I cleared the periodical section of current issues and spent uninterrupted hours reading every cover article that had caught my attention in the grocery store checkout line. I did nothing but read until the librarian's voice on the intercom announced closing and to please check out or return materials to their shelves. I never checked out books. With toddlers at home and a daily vocabulary maximum of two-syllable words, my brain didn't have the power to manage full-length novels. Each week I waited for the last possible second to reshelf my stack of magazines and was the last person to exit the building, the librarian locking the door behind me. I went home feeling like an entirely new woman, more fortified to face my little nemeses for another seven days. Still, we watched nervously, Aaron and I, without speaking of it, for Mrs. Hyde to rupture. For the most part, after Tanner was born, all was calm. Aaron might disagree because there were still episodes, but for me, there wasn't the constant undercurrent of blackness and despondency. 
The episodes were rare, smaller, certainly less frequent. I commented to other women how much more enjoyable the third baby is because you know what you're doing and can relax. During the time after Tanner's birth, we experienced a great deal of happiness, as well as a lot of noise, with our little family. Sometime during all this, I heard an interview where Marie Osmond talked about driving away from home in the middle of the night. This was the first time I'd ever heard the term postpartum depression. After Kate's birth, when I drove away from home in the middle of the night, headed toward Las Vegas to become a showgirl, I was convinced I was the only mother in the world who had ever done that. Marie's book did come home with me from the library, and I read it cover to cover. When I turned the final page, I felt better knowing there was at least one other woman on the planet who had taken her car keys in the middle of the night and driven away from home. Aaron still didn't know about my midnight escapade, but I commented to him about Marie's experience and this thing called postpartum depression. By this time, I was feeling better, and any episodes were so random, unexpected, and spaced months in between that it didn't seem to qualify as a permanent ailment. Without saying anything out loud, perhaps we both thought, hmm, maybe there's something to that. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to these chapters of Lies of the Magpie. If you are a mama, if you know a mama who is just not feeling herself after giving birth but can't quite put her finger on it, just ask her how she's doing. Just help her try to put it into words. The brain gets to be such a jumbled mess, and if you can just talk about it, that can make a big difference to just try to put it into words, to try to label the feelings, try to label the confusion, and be able to get a little bit of a grasp and understanding, and know that there is help and support out there. In the show notes, I will include the contact information for Postpartum Support International, the Blue Dot Project, and some other really great postpartum resources. And remember, if you can, and if you want to, give me a really nice birthday present. Take a minute to leave a review right here on iTunes for this podcast, or go to Amazon and leave a review for Lies of the Magpie. As always, I will meet you back here for another great episode. Bye-bye, friends.